Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Breathe Easy podcast, today featuring the Women in Clinical Problems Working Group. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. My name is Dr. Hala Rokadia, and I'm a tele-intensivist and tele-ICU program director with Sound Physicians, and I'm based out of Houston, Texas. Today, I'll be sitting down with our guest, Dr. Therese Hammond. So after graduating from the University of Missouri Medical School, Dr. Therese Hammond joined Boston University, where she completed her internal medicine residency, including a chief year, and her pulmonary critical care fellowship. She stayed on as faculty at Boston University for five years before being recruited to USC as a fellowship director of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. At USC, she continued to build on her scholarly research experience and mentored many future clinicians at different points in their careers. In 2018, she joined Sound Physicians as the ICU Medical Director at Providence St. John's Hospital in Southern California and led the ECMO program. As of 2021, she is additionally the CMO, Director and Founder of the Sound Center of Research Excellence. So welcome, Therese. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Hala, for the invitation. I'm very excited to, to be here. So we're honored to have you with us today. I'm so excited to learn about your journey. So there are so many burning questions, so let's jump right in. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like the I grew up with the ATS. A lot of um, my best moments were at ATS national conferences. And I think that the work that ATS has done to mentor female pulmonary critical care docs is really phenomenal. Um, you know, I essentially came to medicine late. I, I, I went to college thinking I wanted to be a doctor, but like so many people, it just wasn't good timing for me. I ended up uh, leaving Indiana University a couple of years into my education and, and went off in a different direction. I think one of the great blessings of my life was that I reconnected with the sort of lifelong desire that I had to be in medicine and was able to, you know, finish my degree go to medical school and uh, ultimately become a doctor. It's, it's really uh, such a, an important part of who I am. That's great. You know, sometimes when something is your light and you know where to go, it, it will, you'll get there eventually. So that's a, that's a really interesting uh, part of your story. There have been many phases of your career. So let's start with your time at Boston University and USC. Tell us about your career development during that time. Who were notable mentors along the way? How did they shape how you perceive the role of being a mentor and, and also mentorship in general? Yeah, so I have been so blessed and so privileged in my career. My very first mentor was Mary Williams, uh, who's a PhD and just one of, I think one of the most distinctive figures in uh, pulmonary critical care medicine and cell biology. Uh, Mary and Jerry Brody were the initial founder or the founding editors of the Red Journal. And so that's where I started, you know, this amazing intellectual uh, common sense woman who really pushed me along during my entire fellowship. Um, and, and, you know, she, she did me a really big favor because uh, BU is a very, very research-oriented, you know, basic science-oriented program, but clearly my strength, I think, was in clinical medicine, and she was the first one to tell me, you know, listen, you know, you're not going to be a bench-top researcher. You need to go out, you need to pursue your passions, and you need to, um, to, to find a job that really resonates with you. So I feel, you know, my time at BU 
especially in terms of sort of the strong female clinical leaders, Helen Hollinsworth, Chris Reardon. I mean, I can go on and on about the, the strong women that sort of guided me early in my career. And I feel very blessed uh, by that. I think it's really interesting when people can see things in yourself that you don't even necessarily recognize until it's told to you. So uh, maybe that is how uh, mentors can play a really important role in our lives. What about how your experience with them shaped how you became a mentor to others, as well as how you perceive the role of mentorship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely believe, you know, I see far because I stood on the shoulders of giants and I, you know, I think that a lot of what I've received is through osmosis and I have tried to pass that on to my, you know, initially my sort of my colleagues and my, you know, my residents and then my co-fellows, but uh, ultimately to my trainees. I mean, when uh, I was recruited by Zia Borok, who's been another really amazing instrumental figure in my life, I was recruited to USC to join her division. And there just aren't that many division chiefs that are women uh, in our field in pulmonary critical care. Mm -hmm. And she actually uh, created an, an environment that was very conducive to advancement. I think that that was probably one of the really sort of salient decisions in my, in my career that I came to USC, I became the program director and I got to mentor mm -hmm. other young women and men uh, mm -hmm. through really grueling training. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think I don't want to sort of play the, the woman card, but I do think that training is extraordinarily difficult for women in pulmonary critical care because we're just underrepresented. Um, women physicians, especially women trainees, are held to a different standard, I think, than male trainees. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think a lot of those early lessons that I got from Mary and from Chris Reardon and from Helen and, you know, from Zia uh, really helped me help them and, and helped, you know, them develop a certain amount of resiliency. Because I think to succeed, um, women in particular need to be resilient against sort of the, 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 uh, the challenges that they face, you know, both mm -hmm. in terms of their their career as a doctor, their career as an academician or a researcher, and then their additional responsibilities, um, you know, at home with kids, with families, uh, we really do have a lot to balance. You know, that's a, that's a good point. And it actually kind of dovetails into the next set of questions we were going to ask you was about kind of looking back at your career, how do you think in a positive or negative way being a female physician has affected that career? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I do think there are positives and negatives. I think a lot of the creativity that I've been able to cultivate during my career has come from, you know, being a woman and mm -hmm. I think being um, sensitive and, and, I think really engaged with my patients. I think sort of always feeling that the, the patient connection was so important. Uh, I think that really guided a lot of what I, what I did in my career and the choices that I made. Mm -hmm. um, I think on the downside, it, it, takes, it took me longer to sort of come into full flight. I mean, I feel like really uh, just the last couple of years, my career is really sort of actualizing and, and, and going mm -hmm. to the places that, you know, maybe had I been a man, it would have happened 10 years earlier for me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think I think that that is probably the balance that I see, but. I wouldn't change it. I mean, I think that had I been a man in pulmonary critical care, I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to do many of the things that I've been able to do during my fellowship time, you know, as a fellowship director. uh, And then especially now uh, during COVID in a community setting where Mm -hmm. I feel like I've been able to make an enormous impact. Absolutely, absolutely. So for our listeners who are female physicians that are early in their careers, maybe even interested in pursuing leadership positions, do you have any advice for them? I do. I mean, I think that mentorship is exceptionally important to women. I think that the the opportunities are harder to find. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that having a trusted uh, senior colleague that you can bounce things off of, I mean, I truly believe that my career, um, my career is very dependent on that, that early mentorship that I, that I got. Mm -hmm. Um, I got confidence, you know, I I saw that, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard road. I mean, any pulmonary critical care job is, is difficult. We Mm -hmm. are (laughs) doctors in the hospital that everybody's looking to. We have a lot of responsibilities both inside the ICU and, and within the hospital and, and sort of within our society, you know, within, within ATS Mm -hmm. and our other groups. So it's a, so, so it's a hard, it's, it's a hard road. And I think I needed to see that, um, that, you know, I could overcome those that other people had overcome those barriers Mm -hmm. and get advice along the way about how best to do it. You know, my first um, responses are not always the best and probably Mm -hmm. one of the best career lessons I got ever was from Zia actually, because she had this thing called the three day rule. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it basically was a reminder that when you respond in anger or frustration or desperation or fear, you know, usually that's not the best response. And so she always, um, you know, said, okay, let's, let's just table it for three days and we'll talk about it, you know, on, on Monday or Tuesday. And, um, you know, that, that simplistic rule, I think is something that has, has really shaped me, especially in my middle career. Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I think, I think, um, you know, the first five years out of fellowship was really that, that, that first sort of attending experience was really still an extension of fellowship, Mm -hmm. but I've required sort of the mentorship of, of many people. I mean, David Center, John, John uh, Bernardo. I mean, there there have been so many people who have helped me along my career, men and women, but the Mm -hmm. women have really connected with me in a way that I think has changed my behavior and helped me get where I am. Wow, that's fabulous. Um, You know, this would be probably a good pivot into that transition period in 2018, where you joined Providence St. John's Hospital and found positions as their IT medical director. Um, you know, of course, you built a, a very rigorous ECMO program there in a community hospital setting. Um, so one, what factors were in play in your decision to make that transition from kind of a traditionally academic um, hospital to community medicine? And, um, you know, did you learn anything along the way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this truly was came completely out of the blue. Um, I was going into my sixth year at, at USC, 
Um, you know, I'd started a sleep medicine fellowship with mm -hmm. uh, um, Sally Ward, who's my colleague at Children's Hospital LA and another amazing female, female mentor. Um, mm -hmm. I felt like I had an extraordinarily successful, one of the largest and most successful pulmonary critical care fellowships. So everything was really like hitting on all cylinders. I mm -hmm. felt very empowered. Um, but, I, you know, there was a part of me that was getting further and further away from patient care and clinical care. And um, it was it was sort of serendipity. I had this 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 couple of week rotation in what turned what is the ECMO unit at USC. It was the first time I'd ever sort of been in that unit. It was really intense. A lot of transplant patients, a lot of ECMO patients, a lot of the very sickest patients, and. I was really at bedside the entire time, you know, wasn't, wasn't going to clinic. I wasn't, you know, reading sleep studies. I wasn't uh, doing all of the other 3000 things that all of uh, us in academics try to juggle. Um, mm -hmm. I was just at bedside taking care of these patients. And that was sort of the first, I think the first opening that I, that I, that I thought, well, you know, I really miss, miss just taking care of patients. And then um, sort of out of the blue, I got a call from a, a, actually a sound recruiter. Mm -hmm. One of my graduating fellows had applied for a job and mm -hmm. the recruiter called me up and said, you know, I got your name from so-and-so. I want to get some information about her. We had a great conversation. Um, it was, it, it just sort of flowed. And then at the end, it was one of those things like, you know, I, I, I have this opportunity that may be coming up. It's to build a brand new ICU program in a pretty exciting community setting. Would you ever consider leading something like that? And, you know, of course, my pat answer was, well, I never say never um, mm -hmm. and sort of hung up and never thought of, and didn't think about it again mm -hmm. until I started getting calls from uh, from people like Sergio Zanata and mm -hmm. really sort of thought leaders in pulmonary critical care that had made the same kind of transition that I'd made mm -hmm. from academics to community. And the long and short of it was, I be it, it, it became clear to me that I wasn't contemplating leaving academics per se, but I felt like we had to extend the boundaries of academics into community settings. The vast majority, 86, 87% of patients are taken care of in community hospitals. Mm -hmm. And the fact that there are so many therapies that are just routine for us, like ECMO, you know, at a place like USC, um, that aren't available in community settings really sort of resonated with me. And frankly, I know that, um, that this move was sort of, maybe it was predestined, I'm sort of a fatalist, so I, I, think <laughs> I was sort of led here. But I do feel like I was able to really be instrumental in extending uh, academic level care to a community setting. And that turned out to be very important, even though it, we started this in the ECMO program before COVID, when COVID mm -hmm. hit, um, it became really, really an important um, element of what was offered for you know, advanced treatment for ECMO and, or advanced treatment for COVID in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, what you say about extending out of that academic um, kind of boundaries into the community space, uh, that really resonates with me. I think that that um, similarly, you know, as a side note, when I was making kind of a similar transition, it was about feeling impactful. And, and given the kind of 
extent and footprint of community medicine in, in the U.S. really felt like that was a space you could make a lot of impact in. And so uh, I, I totally, um, that just resonates so much with me when you say that. Um, well, you know, you mentioned about COVID. So COVID, of course, you know, shook the entire palm critical care community. Um, and, you know, our, a lot of our practices changed. And, and in the setting of that change, um, how would you say you took a time of crisis and found opportunity? So, you know, again, like most of the good things in my life and in my career, it happened, I think, by accident. It just mm -hmm. sort of sort of came about um, when I was least expecting it. And, and honestly, when I when I when I have it in my mind that it's something that's absolutely essential and I'm, you know, sort of sort of going full steam ahead with something that's not always the right path for me. It's oftentimes when it's more subtle and, you know, mm -hmm. something sort of comes to me that, you know, if I listen to those instincts that that tends to take me down the, the correct road. And this is what happened with COVID. I, I mean, we had a thriving ECMO program. We cannulated our first uh, ECMO patient in the community setting in um, December of, 2000, of 2018. So just a few months after I started the program, we had this great academic relationship with USC that we continued. Um, so we really were in a place to be able to actualize this mission, this, this concept that you could take um, academic level treatments into the community and, and be successful and, and mm -hmm. you know, support it. And so we started the ECMO program. Um, it had gone, it was really successful. We were doing n really not that much VV ECMO, but mainly VA ECMO for advanced cardiac surgeries and advanced mechanical support. Um, and, and things were, were really going along. And then you know, March of, of 2020, suddenly we're in the midst of COVID. And um, I was actually called by a medical director of one of our sister ministries, one of the other Providence hospitals. And they told me that they had a young man who, you know, was essentially dying of COVID. And um, they knew that we had an ECMO program. Nobody else in Southern California was, was cannulating COVID patients for ECMO at that point. And we had a discussion and I, you know, luckily had great uh, backup from, uh, from Ray Lee, who was a CT surgeon uh, from USC that was really instrumental in, in bringing ECMO to our community. And we said, yeah, let's do it. And so they cannulated him, they sent him up. He became mm -hmm. our first ECMO survivor. We've now, um, in the course of, since March 21st of 2020, when we cannulated this young man, uh, we've now cannulated 72 patients for VV ECMO wow. uh, due to their COVID disease. Um, mm. You know, not everybody lives. The survival is around between 40 and 45% now. Mm -hmm. But these are all people that would have died if they were waiting for a, an ECMO spot at one of the tertiary centers because mm -hmm. there just was nothing there. Uh, many of them would have died because they could never have been transported um, mm -hmm. to, uh, to an ECMO center. And so, uh, you know, that part of it, it made it really clear to me that it's, it's really about, uh, again, extending the boundaries of what, what we do and, and, you know, working hard to try to even the playing field with the people that are in the communities that are either economically or geographically or, uh, socio or, or socioeconomically disenfranchised. 
Um, so that was sort of the, the first step. And then the second step was, you know, again, sort of a stroke of luck. Um, we had a, St. John's has a, a cancer center that's affiliated with it. And actually at that time, the, the head of the cancer center, Steve O'Day, was doing really cutting edge melanoma work. Um, he was a melanoma expert. He did a lot of cell-based therapies. He had this great research um, team. And he was approached about a study for actually the Gilead study for remdesivir. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, like so many community hospitals, much of the research happens around cancer mm -hmm. and it's outpatient. And, you know, he sort of called me up. We'd met at a meeting not too long before that. And he called me up and said, you know, I don't know anything about inpatient medicine. I definitely don't know anything about COVID and the ICU, but this seems like an opportunity and I can help you with research staff if you would consider being the PI for these studies. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, it took a little bit of convincing, but we did it. And after mm -hmm. that, we were able to open up not just the moderate and severe Gilead trials, but we were able to do work with monoclonal antibodies, with Regeneron's monoclonal antibodies, both inpatient severe and, um, and, and outpatient. We were able to do some work with tocilizumab and um, some of the other um, some of the other novel molecules that were that were used, Novartis and um, several of the the um, the trials that that sort mm -hmm. of evolved over time. We were able to recruit over well over 200 community-based patients, people that never would have thought of being part of research studies. Mm -hmm. And I think we made a big impact. And that that actually, I think, sort of maybe leads us into our shared uh, vision now, or the stage <laughs> of my career, um, which is, is, I think, really exciting for all of us. Right, so now um, you carry the title of CMO and Director of the Sound Center of Research Excellence. Um, and I'm a very, very, very fortunate to be a colleague of yours in, in that. Um, so tell us about that idea, that, or rather the journey from the idea to implementation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think COVID has just laid bare the disparities that have been there all along in medicine. I mean, many of them revolve around race and ethnicity. Many of them revolve around economics or geography. There are just so many disparities that that are that are there and COVID opened the window opened the shown the spotlight on on all of them and I think mm -hmm. one of the biggest disparities is that um, patients uh, for very good reasons honestly uh, patients of color have been reluctant to be part of research trials and I think COVID and I think the frustration of all of us that we had so very little to offer um, mm -hmm. to COVID patients, you know, also sort of spilled over to our patients and the families. I mean, I'm sure that you had the same experience, mm -hmm. have patients' families in that wanted me to try all kinds of crazy therapies, you know, mm -hmm. in desperation to help their loved ones. Mm -hmm. But, you know, instead of having to go down that route, I could say to them, listen, we, we have something that we're looking at scientifically. We have a lot of protections in place to make sure that this happens in an ethical way. We, you know, we have the potential to try to help, you know, your loved one, but also a lot of other people. And that message became really potent for me as a clinician and then, you know, ultimately as a clinical researcher 
and and it gave hope to the patients and mm -hmm. um, and you know not just the patients but also the doctors that were at outlying communities you know part of our ministry that didn't have access we were able to bring people in we were able to put them on trial um i think it just again sort of opened the door to the idea that there there shouldn't be this many barriers to research as a clinical and a therapeutic option and, you know, maybe that's where ATS helps, you know, maybe that's mm -hmm. where academicians, you know, start to start to think, well, you know, the, the vast majority of people are, are not going to a tertiary or quaternary center. They're mm -hmm. in their community, they're in their community hospitals or talking to their local doctors and they deserve access to um, some of these really cutting edge therapies in the same way that our, our, our tertiary center patients get it. You know, it's the, the people that go to, um, you know, to a, a USC self-select there, they mm -hmm. can advocate for themselves. They know how to get there. They have the money to drive there, the gas money to make it there. They have a lot of things that fall into place that let them go to, uh, you know, a USC or a Cedars. Um, but a lot of patients in, in the communities we serve through sound mm -hmm. Ridgecrest and mm -hmm. Twin cities. And, you know, these are hospitals that, that take care of patients that don't have the luxury, uh, to mm -hmm. travel and to seek, seek out opportunities for advanced treatments and, uh, for, you know, again, research as a therapeutic option. So, that is something I feel like the, you know, this latter stage of my career is going to really revolve around. I think that we need to, um, we need to transform the way that we, that we recruit patients and, and um, make accessible uh, research trials um, to community hospital patients. And that's sort of where SCORE came from. Um, we talked about doing it on just a very local level, sort of taking the example that we had from St. John's and our success and, and sort of with a sort of a centralized research team and, and trying to extend it to ICUs um, really just in Southern California that sounds sound uh, staffed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately I think that vision um, became bigger and bigger and bigger and, I think we're we're sort of at, in the right place at the right time because I think that the acknowledgement that there's so many disparities is mm -hmm. now you know very widespread and uh, I think both in terms of federal government and funding and organizations and community large community practices themselves I think there's a, a great enthusiasm for supporting this kind of effort um, so I you know I think it's I I think that we will hopefully play a role in decreasing the disparities in, in medicine. Yeah, and I would add to that, that even when you have more diverse data, that the outcomes of those studies have more external validity as well. So, you know, there's, there's probably win-win-wins here um, in that regard. Yeah, um, I think when you have, you know, big organizations that are just sort of randomly trying to recruit patients for trials, and that's sort of the, that's, that's sort of the way that it's happened for, for many, many years, especially with pharmaceutical trials or industry sponsored mm -hmm. trials, 
you know, they, they're, again, they're going to recruit the people that are savvy enough to respond to an ad or see it in a paper or see it on the internet. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of people will listen and will be interested in something like this if their doctor tells them mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. this is a possibility, Absolutely. if they can hear about it in the context of their life, in the context of their community, um, in the context with, with you know, support from people that they trust, mm-hmm. and with the acknowledgement that, um, that the commitment is to pristine science, to rigorous Mm-hmm. Um, ethical principles to good clinical practices. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's what we can bring. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I want to delve just a little further into kind of the building of SCORE, which is the Sound Center of Research Excellence. Um, when you thought of this idea and you thought of it at a local level and then had to kind of zoom out and think about it, taking it nationally, um, how do you navigate learning the ropes and the language when you have to include the business of medicine in those discussions? And what resources or individuals do you lean on when you build on those skills? Yeah, so it, it sort of evolved organically. I just thought uh, we had so much success, um, not only with recruiting uh, research studies and then recruiting patients uh, to the St. John studies, that you know, I began to believe and think that this could be scaled. That this could be something that we could do this on a larger level. Um, but you know, I just I just started talking to the people that I trust, like you and Mike. You know, my direct sort of colleagues. Like, hey, what if we could? What if we could do this on a much bigger scale? Um, just think about how many patients we could help, how many people we could help that really don't have this access. And so we just sort of batted it around a little bit. And then, um, you know, as we talked about it more, the idea was, well, if you're really serious about this, if you really think this is a good idea, you have to write a business plan. Um, That's where things got really complicated (laughs) for me because without a calculator or my iPhone, I find it very difficult to do advanced equations. Um, So, you know, I just, I, I just, that was not ever a part of, um, you know, I don't have an MBA. I don't have that business vision. Um, but, you know, luckily I had the internet. I, I searched for templates for business plans. I had mm-hmm. people like you and Mike um, that could help and round things mm-hmm. out. And we just sort of all started talking about it. It's like, I, I sort of think about it as, you know, I, I feel like we were all sort of sitting on the friends cast, right? Uh, the friends <laughs> We were all sitting around saying, hey, wouldn't this be a great idea? Yeah, well, how could we do that? Well, we could do it this way. Yeah, maybe we could, you know, you could find this and you could do that. And so we sort of had this small group of people that sort of shared this vision or um, shared this passion. And, and it just sort of built up that way. And eventually we were able to take it to the critical care leadership within Sound um, that felt like, yeah, you know, this could be something that, that we could really embrace. And then I, you know, I think we're just really fortunate that we have, um, we have a, a, a leader, you know, an emergency medicine doc, who's our CEO, that mm-hmm. saw this, this sort of very rudimentary business plan and said, Oh, my God, this is really something that we need to do for our patients, for our hospital partners, and for each other, you know, this, this makes a lot of sense. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
it just sort of evolved. I think um, now we're at a stage where things are starting to crystallize, where we're evolving um, sort of this very sort of rudimentary idea into something that will hopefully be um, be a, a, a division or, or a proper sort of um, enterprise that can connect with uh, with our many community hospitals. Uh, I think you know we have 68 or 70 community ICUs um, that we staff. Uh, and I, I hope that the offshoot of this is that we can, we can level the playing field a little bit for many of those uh, community settings and community patients. Yeah, that's, that's great. I think it, you know, it speaks to our listeners who similarly have, you know, ideas and innovations that they speak about and actually bring, believing that you can bring them to fruition. Um, so, you know, kind of in knowing that you were able to do that, you <laughs> can give some hope that others can too. So, I mean, um, knowing, knowing that we've been able to do that is actually mm-hmm. pretty phenomenal. I, I'm still a little bit in disbelief that we've been able to push it so far so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think, you know, part of that even goes back again to Mary Williams, my, I guess, I guess still in the back of my mind, it's always like, instead of what would Jesus do? It's like, what would Mary do? <laughs> and, you know, I think, I, I think back to, to Mary and I think had she sort of seen this, you know, I hear her voice saying, this is the right thing to do. Just, just do it. Just make it happen. Um, just yeah. like Zia used to say, just do it. You know, this is the right thing. <laughs> And, um, and, and, you know, it, 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 I think it took a lot of um, disappointment along the way and a lot of adversity along the way to get to where we are right now. Mm-hmm. But in the end, I, you know, I, I think in, we need transformation in medicine, clearly. We need to, mm-hmm. the, the old way post COVID is not the answer. And mm-hmm. uh, we all need to, to work to find better ways of, connecting to our patients, to treating our patients, to breaking down walls and, uh, and, and sort of uh, uh, dismantling silos that mm-hmm. we have, you know, sort of existed in for so many, many decades in medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, that, uh, that kind of leads into one of our final questions was what does the future in pulmonary critical care medicine look like from your perspective? You know, when I was a fellowship director, I was I was very um, I was very convinced that it you know pulmonary critical care was probably not the future of ICU medicine. I mean, I I, I do think that a multi specialty uh, you know team boat uh, team based approaches to the ICU are are absolutely essential, and I think that COVID has just really sort of accelerated that path. You know the work that you're doing with tele ICU, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, leveraging the technologies to be able to see more patients and give better patient um, uh, patient care. I think is something that we have to embrace as a specialty. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that there are a lot of communities that can't afford to have full time ICU docs, and mm-hmm. so how do we how do we improve the care for those patients? How do we how do we leverage our, our uh, expertise and, and respond to that need. So, I, I mean, I definitely see the future of pulmonary critical care or better yet, the future of ICU medicine 
very much revolving around technology, very mm -hmm. much building on the remote um, access and the, you know, the, the, the telemedicine sort of options that we had to rely on during COVID. I think that that is something that is definitely part of our future vision mm -hmm. for ICU medicine. And I think, um, you know, having a smart ICU, having ways of integrating uh, families and patients and clinicians and united them sort of in, in common goals, um, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, all of the technology may allow us to communicate with each other better. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the uh, sort of worst memories I have of interactions usually revolve around and the biggest problems that I've had or I've worked walked my fellows through have revolved around lacks, uh, you know, failures in communication. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think that that's definitely a big part of, of the future. And, you know, as a sort of academician uh, extended to community physician as, as I've sort of, you know, uh, gone through a lot of these different transformations in my own life and career, I hope that, um, that the institutions that, you know, are, are, are behind the, those, those pockets, those, those uh, components of medicine, I hope that they'll start stretching themselves as well mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, really look to transfer, transform uh, how we deliver care. Absolutely. Well, you know, I want to close with one personal question. Um, so what is your most memorable vacation to date and what made it so special? So in uh, over Christmas, over the Christmas holiday or the, the holiday season in uh, December of 2019, um, I actually took my then 11 year old daughter to Maui. So mm -hmm. We decided to go. Um, that's actually where we went diving for the very first time. I became, you know, oh, wow. came back and got certified in diving. It was just this really sort of idyllic, innocent week. And it almost feels like, you know, sort of like that Don, Don Henley song, you know, the, the, um, uh, the death of the innocence or the, you know, the, the, <laughs> that it was, there was that, that sort of moment where everything seemed really, really perfect. And my daughter was young enough to really be excited about everything. And uh, we just had a great time. And then, you know, obviously not too long after that, in January of 2020, we started to see these really super sick patients that we thought just had influenza, of course, they couldn't possibly mm -hmm. have COVID and mm -hmm. things really, um, really sort of changed. So I, I, mm -hmm. I think that Maui 2019 will always be a very important, uh, hold a very important place in my heart. And of course now my daughter's 13, so I don't think we will ever be able to truly recreate <laughs> that. Wow, that's great. I think we all need to make a trip out there then. <laughs> um, well, you know, just just for time, I just want to wrap up and say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and the advice and the lessons learned here um, for our listeners. Um, there have been so many, this has generally just been a very memorable moment for me to learn about you and your journey and um, very inspiring nonetheless. And um, I appreciate you taking your time out on of a busy day uh, to discuss with us. So um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Hala. <laughs> 
So thank you to all for listening to this episode of Breathe Easy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit breatheeasy.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.